Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. Once again, I have resisted the urge to start the show by saying, hey, everybody, or whatever, <laughs> just something else. Just there's a little voice in your head that goes, just say something else, just anything else, whatever. It'd be fun. But no, welcome to Political Misfits. I always say we have a great show for you today. And yeah. I don't know if it's going to be a great show. I hope it is. Our intention is always exactly. for it to be a great show. And that's our intention again today. And certainly uh, there's no lack of topics to talk about and uh, important ones at that. Uh, the conservatives have a new leader. Mm-hmm. Rishi Sunak, been named party leader, yep. going to be PM. Yep. Unless, you know, for some reason, King Charles <laughs> says no, says no, gets mad that Sunak is richer than he is, apparently, which I find hard to believe. Right. That's just someone someone told me reading from the Internet. So uh, don't take that as confirmed information coming from Michelle Witte on Political Misfits. Well, I've also read he's very, very well to do. Mm-hmm. He's an investment banker by training. Mm-hmm. His father was an executive at I think it was Infosys. Um, interestingly, he's the young he's the youngest um, prime minister in 200 years. He's the first uh, prime minister of color, and he's the first non-Christian prime minister. Really breaking new ground over there. Yeah, Yeah. honestly, honestly about time. Um, Yes, so we will talk about the implications of this uh, this change. He does seem to he does have an air of respectability that I think Liz Truss just could not ever manage. Uh, Bojo. Also, respectability, not an adjective you would assign to him, but he did have a certain charisma, you know, and... Uh, yeah, he did, in and that odd stick with way. itness somehow. Yes. Yeah. Although, I got to tell you, you know, I always thought that he made a, a, a lot of really stupid decisions, just spur-of-the-moment stupid decisions. And he admitted, even when he was a journalist, to just being a bomb thrower. Yeah. But this well-considered decision to not stand for prime minister on Sunday was yeah. a very big deal and a surprise. And it, it cleared the way for Rishi Sunak. Yeah. Now, Rishi Sunak is just as conservative sure. as Liz Truss and, and uh, Boris Johnson. So I, I'm not sure we're going to see wild changes in policy. But No, but it will now he will appear to be in control, I think. And yes. he's getting, you know, he's, he's getting the Bill Gates treatment. Oh, yes. a little wonk who store stumbled his way into power. Look at look at that little nerdy guy. Let's <laughs> see what he does. Surely nothing exactly. bad. Surely he's not the same vile creature as all those who have come before and will yeah. follow. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, we'll talk about the uh, the wrap up of China's Communist Party Congress yesterday and all that drama over Hu Jintao. Mm -hmm. It was very strange. Does seem to have, he does seem to have come back and continued uh, with the voting process, but it was strange to have that play out so publicly. Yeah. Yeah. And it it did look like he was being dragged out. It really did. Well, he he showed back up again. He was confused. He he didn't appear to, he didn't pop out of his seat, we'll say. Drag is an exaggeration, but yeah, no, it was a, it was an odd moment. Uh, So we'll talk about that. We'll also talk about substitute substantively what has come out of that Congress. Um, yes. We are going to talk about the one of the big domestic headlines of the day, which is uh, the repercussions of COVID on education and particularly mm-hmm. on these, what's called the national report card, these reading and math scores from fourth and eighth graders, which very unsurprisingly declined, yes. right? Yeah, dramatically. The, the question is, what do you, you know? Okay, What's the alternative? Not, yeah, not surprising that in an era of sort of ad hoc home and hybrid education that it, you know, kids 
fell behind. Yeah. Uh, but what what are we going to do about it now? What are we going to do with these results? I, no, and, and I, I, I have no knows. idea. You, you read all these articles today and they're everywhere. The Journal, The Times, The LA Times, um, AP, uh, and they're all reporting these terrible numbers, especially in math. And nobody's offering up any... Uh, any fixes. No, I mean, you see, I mean, who knows? Maybe there's something that's been proposed by the education department. We'll see. I, I am just seeing that it's uh, it's unacceptable, but not really seeing what's the plan to to exactly. change this trend. We are going to talk about a general strike in the West Bank and efforts underway to make criticism of Israeli policy uh, unacceptable and punishable. Yes. Outside of Israel in the United States. Um, yeah, this is a dangerous trend. It really is. It, it's very strange. It, like, it really shouldn't. It's it, 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 people should take notice of this. It's it's grim. Uh, we're going to talk about the start of the trial of the Trump organization today in New York. Harvey Weinstein's uh, yes. Los Angeles rape trial also starts today. The, the jury has been seated. Nine mm-hmm. men, three women. And um, and he faces life without parole in California. He, the The New York Supreme Court just a couple of weeks ago gave Weinstein uh, permission to appeal. So in the unlikely event that his case is thrown out in New York, he still has this whole ordeal to face in uh, Los Angeles. And uh, yeah. I think he's going to have a tough time of it. Yes, yeah, seems like it. Uh, and we are going to talk about whether we should be worried about what's going on with the yen. Uh, this is my favorite sort of economic. I don't think it's a sideshow. Japan is the third biggest economy in the world. Also, I saw uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom tweeting that California is uh, has the fourth now or is on oh, track to really? have the fourth. I have to see what he was saying. I don't know if it's a will be the fourth in X That's short incredible. period of time or not. Yeah, I mean, big country, big mm-hmm. state. Oh, and we've got the mystery, significant national security matter. Yeah, that, uh, Merrick Garland and other DOJ officials are going to be talking about at one thirty today. Um, we don't. Uh, there have been no leaks, which is interesting to me. Mm-hmm. This is going to be very important. But this is about what malign influence activities by That's a nation right. state actor. I mean, you can pick. You, yeah. you can pick from a very short list probably of who this is going to be about. Uh, I think there's probably good money, as we discussed earlier, probably good money on this being something related to Iran. I think so. But you never know. Yep. Russia, China, North Korea, Iran. uh, It could be be anybody. Yeah. So we'll see at 1.30 or probably a little bit later than 1.30. And uh, we'll see if our guest has any better guess. Uh, Another interesting thing. So we were talking talking on, on Friday, I think, about that case of the Afghan baby who was alleged to have been kidnapped by a couple of U.S. Marines. And then some family seems to have come out of the woodwork and said, hey, 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 we never wanted you to take this child. We would like this child back. This is the child of our relatives. And I was I I didn't have on the tip of my tongue figures for how many Afghan children are still unaccompanied in the U.S. a year after our withdrawal. And what do you know? The Wall Street Journal just happened to be talking about this, this sort of thing. They did a podcast episode on it speaking to their foreign affairs reporter. Um, But they note 1,500 Afghan miners made it to the U.S. without a parent in the chaos of that withdrawal. Yeah, 1,500. Um, And so they're they're talking about this phenomena. The reporter says, so that was more than a year ago. There's still no official process for reuniting these families. So if you're a child or if you're a parent who has lost a relative— 
there's not any central place to go to send this information in the United States. The Biden administration's official policy is that any family separated at the Kabul airport is eligible for a seat on a limited number of evacuation flights. But this reporter notes, like, if you start to put together who that means, you have a list of maybe a quarter million eligible people. Yeah. Um, She also notes, they they talk about the story of one uh, 16-year-old girl who arrived here without her family. Her family's in Afghanistan. She's in touch with her family. Um, She arrived here. She was put into the care of an aunt. The care of the aunt wasn't adequate. Um, She ended up in a local hospital. She's gone to a foster family where she appears to be doing quite well under the circumstances. You know, she's found she's found appropriate care. She's learning how to drive. She's going to school. Uh, she wants to be reunited with her with her mother. But there's also no guidance on how to deal with situations right. like these. And this is, you know, uh, chaos. the withdrawal was a thing that needed to happen. Right. And I Definitely. think organ, organs like the Wall Street Journal and other <clears throat> more conservative papers have taken the chaos of that process and used it as a, you know, a, a cudgel to beat Joe Biden with. And certainly I, I would suspect there were ways that could have been done much better. Um, but I think, you know, their, their points in harping on it is to say that we should never have withdrawn from Afghanistan. We abdicated our duty, et cetera. But however you feel about that, I do think a year should be sufficient time for putting together some kind of specific plan and some kind of specific, you know, coordinating body to do this thing that you've promised to do. Especially when that's your job. Yeah. You know, we've got these Office of Immigration, you know, coordination at the State Department, the Department of Homeland Security. It's your job to figure out the standard operating procedure for making this as smooth a process as possible. Yeah. And it hasn't been done. And all she's gotten is, you know, the State Department has said they have plans for creating Mm -hmm. an online portal where family members can upload their data. I mean, I don't know how long it takes to build one of those things, but I don't think it's a year. Not when you have a whole team behind it and an unlimited budget. And there was no possible way to anticipate this before the before the event anyway. It's just yeah, it is just it's just garbage. So there's no process for sending your data over. There's no process for getting anybody on a list for evacuation. Even even if you are in contact with these people, there's no process. Yeah. So. Just shoddy. And and this is a 16 year old we're talking about as this one example. What about the ones that are, you know, 18 months old or four years old? What do they do? Yeah. They're not in touch with their families on Skype every couple of days. Yeah. 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 This is a very big problem. It's a very big problem. Hey, congratulations to (laughs) congratulations to the husband of the former princess of Japan. Did you see that? Oh, I saw that. I guess they live in New York. Yeah, I didn't yeah. really. I know she abdicated. Mm-hmm. And so she's I not remember that technically they, a princess anymore. Yeah. But yeah, they moved to New York. I and didn't know that. And he's now past the bar. Yes, he has. Third First, time's the charm. Oh, it was the third time? Yeah, it was his third try. Yeah. Do you remember Tom Fitzpatrick? We've had him on the show a couple of times. Um, he sat two rows behind John F. Kennedy Jr. when he took the bar for the first time. And he said he was so proud at the time because Tom passed on the first go around mm-hmm. and it took JFK Jr. three three tries. Sometimes it takes a while. I'm it's not hard. Gonna, yeah. But yeah. so now he's very happy. He works at a law firm. Uh, and I don't know if she has a job. I don't know. But what what do former princesses do? I got to say, I, I don't know if you followed this and I'm sorry for getting off topic, but this Meghan Markle mini scandal over the weekend. Have you followed this? Oh, no. She said, you know, she used to be on that show Deal Suits. or No Deal. Oh, OK. She used to stand there with the suitcase and, and you know, they'd say number 22 and she would open it. You right. know, she said she felt objectified when she was doing that. Well, it's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, that's the, the point. point. Oh, my God. 
<laughs> I mean, yeah, doesn't make it great, but it's it shouldn't if it comes as a surprise to you. Right. That that's that you are also eye candy. Right. Give me. A, a she wasn't break. hired to hold the, the suitcase or the uh, the briefcase for her intellect. You know, I'm sure she's very bright. Sure. But, but they didn't hire fine. her because she's very bright. Yeah. No, no, they didn't. No, that is very silly. Uh, oh, man. I, there's a, a couple of other stories that I just wanted to mention. I have to say I, the New York Times on Friday had a story uh, entitled Half the World Has a Clitoris. Why Don't Doctors Study It? I saw that. I just recommend women take a look at that article. It is true that, you know, the for a very long time, the sort of the standard body that medicine looked at was a was a white male body. Right. Right. And so you see how anything happens in that body and then whatever else, however else things manifest in different kinds of people is is treated as an aberration or not recognized. And so we're moving away from that. But I still think it is true that um, women are expected to endure a lot more pain and discomfort and inconvenience than men are. Yes. And it just shouldn't be the case. And so they say, hey, look, this is an organ. This is an organ that half the people in the world have. You should probably like know where it is and know how big it is and know where the nerves are that affect it because it does matter. And they detail, you know, like, again, even if you do, hey, even if you can't find it, yeah, <laughs> there's, there's actually, there's a whole there's iceberg a, there underneath. Yeah. And basically, I'm just saying, ladies, if you have to have anything medically done between your waist and your knees, somebody needs to become a clitoral advocate yes. who can stand next to you and say, okay, make sure you don't, you know. Hit it like uh, they accidentally hit an electric line, accidentally hit it. Just you know, we don't want that happening. <laughs> right. We don't want that happening. And it should no, matter. It should. it should matter enough to at least teach basic anatomy. You know, I remember you know? when Ronald Reagan was shot. I was in high school and um, ABC News. This is in the pre CNN pre cable days, of course. ABC News was trying to explain where he was shot and what it meant. And they brought out this uh, anatomical model. And it took them 15 minutes before they realized or somebody realized this is a model of a woman. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then they had to go to commercial and find a model of a man. Yeah. Just, you know, just pay some attention and treat treat those things that only that only women have as as also important. Mm-hmm. It's because men don't have them doesn't mean they don't matter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's all. That's my medical call for the day. All right. Let's take a break. We've got some other real, uh, real quickly. I have to interrupt you oh, just please. for one second. There are some complaints on the in the rumble chat about um, the the feed freezing. It's freezing for us too. We don't know why. We don't know where the problem is. We assume it's at Rumble, but we're going to uh, we're going to try to check it out. Yeah. And we're on the radio anyway. Exactly. Do you try there? All right, we're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits. Uh, we're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in DC. We'll be right back. Back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Seven weeks after being defeated in his first attempt to become the British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, will accomplish that today. 
Former Prime Minister Boris Johnson's decision over the weekend not to try to return to office paved the way for Britain's first prime minister of color and first non-Christian prime minister. Sunak, who is 42 years old and a Hindu, built his career as an investment banker before turning to politics just eight years ago. He will now lead a conservative party that's largely in disarray, even though it commands a large majority in parliament. Inflation in the UK is at its highest level in 40 years. Unemployment is rising. And the country is going to face a difficult fuel shortage this winter. In other news, the Department of Justice today at 1.30 will announce U.S. action targeting what they are calling, quote, malign influence schemes and alleged criminal activity by a nation state actor, unquote. We don't know exactly what that means, but the press conference will be hosted by the attorney general himself. Meanwhile, allegations of a Ukrainian dirty bomb were swirling around Washington this weekend. We'll talk about the agent provocateur theory. And the Daily Beast on Friday published a provocative article saying that any Republicans opposed to continuing aid to Ukraine were essentially puppets of Vladimir Putin. We're joined by Nicholas Davies. He's an independent journalist, a researcher with Code Pink, and the author of the book Blood on Our Hands, The American Invasion and Destruction of Iraq. Nick, welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me. Always great to have you. It's been a long time. Let's start with Rishi Sunak becoming Prime Minister of the UK. This is a very big deal for the UK historically, even if it doesn't mean much in terms of a change in policy, especially economic policy. Sunak is the first person of color, the first non-Christian, the youngest prime minister in 200 years. But there is very little light between his his professed policies, at least, and those of Liz Truss and Boris Johnson. The Guardian today reported that more than two million British households are already in debt on their electricity bills. What do you think we should expect to see in the UK as inflation rages on and the cooling weather causes an increasingly difficult fuel shortage? What what does he have in mind? Well, uh, in the previous uh, leadership contest uh, uh, just six weeks ago, um, Sunak was clearly the the moderate, um, which is of course why he was rejected by by the uh, the, the the party faithful. These conservative leadership contests are uh, only involve about a hundred thousand people. Uh, basically, um, you know, wealthy uh, business people and uh, landowners and people like that who are who are part of the Conservative Party club. Um, and um, this time, this time they did not even reach out to the to, to the grassroots party members. They 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 simply had the parliament, you know, the mem- conservative members of parliament take a vote on this one. But um, and and Sunak was the, the favourite of of the 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 um the conservative members of parliament uh, last time around too. Um, so, so in in a sense, he he is a he, he does represent the conservative the conservative members of parliament who threw out uh, both Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. So, in that sense, it is the um, the least extreme, the more traditional. 
conservatives who who are supporting him. In the previous leadership race, he, um, unlike Truss, he was not promising immediate billion-dollar tax cuts for mm-hmm. corporations and the wealthy. He was basically saying, yes, I, I support all that, but this is not the time to do it. Uh, you know, we need to wait a little bit until the economy improves before we, uh, you know, before we reward all our uh, investors and uh, and supporters. Um, in the course of the chaos under Johnson and Truss, uh, the Conservative Party has really hit, I think, I think it's an all-time historic low in terms of its national support. Oh, interesting. Even as it refuses to, to step down and allow the British people to have an actual election. Um, it was uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, I, there was a 30-point gap between Labour and Conservatives. But Labour had a 30-point lead in the opinion polls. Um, so what, what can Sunak do? The economy is, is um, he, will pre- he will presumably reassure investors and people like that and repair some of the damage to the stock market from, from Truss's just, just sort of extreme lunatic lunatic economics. Um, you know, the 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 the, the debate in, in Britain, I was there during the first um first uh leadership race that, that Trust won and it was simply incredible to hear the BBC and the entire media in the UK uh, debating as if trickle down economics you know, taxes yes. for the rich were a serious way to 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 stimulate economic growth and 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 and, and make the kind of, and improve the standard of living of ordinary people. It was simply Orwellian. Yeah, we've tried that in the United States several times, and it's failed each time. And now we have a a national debt that exceeds that of the UK. Um, and it can be tied directly to uh, to cutting taxes, especially taxes on corporations and the wealthy, and increasing spending. It just doesn't work. It doesn't trickle down. And and why don't and one one has to ask why why uh, do why have, well actually I was asking myself in the summer why have the British people not figured this out? They've been living with it. Thirty years since, um, but in fact, I think what we see reflected in these opinion polls and reflected in you know the, the implosion of of Truss's prime ministership is that in fact people do understand that, and um, the the problem really in Britain is that the Tories have have engineered this this sort of monopoly on power, um, and the Labour Party. Uh, are, are, very, are very weak. I mean, it's, it seems strange to say that, have a 30-point lead in the polls. But they actually, they, uh, the Labour Party actually imploded 
at the last election, yes, of a Brexit, but also also in their own. The the, the, the the Labour Party establishment, much like the corporate Democrats here, just absolutely turned uh, on their leader, on the leader of the Labour Party, uh, Jeremy Corbyn. He was he was considered a radical and a leftist, but because he, like Bernie Sanders here, was actually proposing uh, policies that would benefit uh, working people. And and that was just too much even for the British Labour Party. And they, they turned on him, accused him of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism. He has, he has a history of, of supporting human rights for the Palestinians. And and uh, so, so really, the British politics has just become a sort of infinitesine, uh, stab-in-the-back um, competition between the, 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 worst, the worst elements of British politics. I'll tell you, it's, it's going to be a fascinating 13 or 14 months until the next general election. Uh, in the UK, because I think you're right. I think that if the election were held today, Labour would win a majority of historic proportions. But the the election isn't today. It's going to be a year from uh, December or January, and uh, and we don't <laughs> we don't know if Labour is going to be able to get its act together in the meantime. But certainly something to watch. I want to I want to move on if I could, Nick. We we won't know for another hour or 90 minutes, what the Department of Justice and the Attorney General plan to tell us about what they're describing as a major national security threat. The, the, the uh, Attorney General himself is going to hold this press conference. Uh, it could be anything. It could be Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, uh, anything. We've seen an uptick in anti-Iranian news just since last week. Um, what do you think we should expect here? a criminal case, or are we looking at, God forbid, maybe our next military engagement? Well, since it's the Attorney General who's making this announcement, it seems unlikely that this is going to be a declaration of war against any of those countries. But, um, and I, I think you're, you're probably right that uh, um, Iran is currently the, the sort of villain of the day. Mm-hmm for uh, American politics and media. Um, <clears throat> there's this sort of absolute, uh, you know, de- delight in many quarters over the the, the chaos that's, that's been gripping Iran. Um, uh, but of course, you know, the, the, the United States uh, has so many enemies around the world, many of which do not want to be enemies of the United States would be very glad to, to bury the hatchet, restore relations, and, uh, and um, you know, and co- cooperate. Certainly that's the case with, with, with Cuba. It has been the case with Russia, strange to say, uh, with whom we are in effectively at war today. Um, uh, and uh, it's the United States that puts itself in in that position. Um, you know, it has supported, at the very least, supported Israeli assassinations of scientists in Iran. 
to what extent uh, your former employer may have been involved in that. Certainly. have no way of knowing, but um, you know the Iranians themselves sort of blame blame Israel and blame the U.S. for supporting Israel in those kind of flagrantly criminal, illegal, um, uh, and and really you know, dangerous, dangerous uh, adventures. Um, you know, there's always North Korea, but. Um, Hard to imagine what sort of criminal case uh, the Attorney General would be unveiling against North Korea. So, um, you know, the, uh, the the two countries are so isolated from each other that there's really no no sort of involvement between them. Um, you know, the the extraordinary thing is though, that that as we saw at the UN General Assembly. Um, if anyone was paying attention, uh, 66 countries spoke out um, for peace in Ukraine, six countries incidentally representing a majority of the world's population, right. they included India and China and many other large countries in the global south. And, you know, the, the, the sort of elaborate, elaborate global public relations exercise that that the United States has managed managed to keep going through the Cold War and since the end of the Cold War. If, if you listen to diplomats from other countries across the global south, the United States has lost its credibility. It, it no longer, when, 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 Global leaders called at the UN for peace in Ukraine. They were not just addressing it to Russia and Ukraine. They were addressing it to to the United States. Absolutely. And to the Western European countries that are part of this absolutely up to their necks in that crisis. And and so this is this is the in the multipolar world starting to emerge, and the United States is no longer a champion of international law. It is no longer it no longer has the power to you know to to carrot and stick its way to um, you know indisputable influence of every country in the world. It is the rest of the world is is coming of age. The, the, the colonial era is gone and the neo-colonial era is going. And um, anyway, it will be interesting to see who the United States Justice Department is going after this time. Indeed, it will. Uh, the Russian government, Nick, over the weekend said that Ukraine was preparing to use a dirty bomb against Russian forces on what the Ukrainians, of course, claim is Ukrainian territory. This is an accusation that was immediately dismissed by the U.S., the U.K., and the Ukrainian governments. But then the U.S. went so far as to say that it was the Russians who were planning to use a dirty bomb on themselves and then blame the Ukrainians. This is akin to what we saw in Syria a decade ago during the Obama administration uh, with U.S. allegations that Bashar al-Assad had used chemical weapons on his own people after being warned by the Obama administration not to. OPCW investigators later said that there was no evidence that the Syrian government had used any chemical weapons. 
What do you make of the accusations of a possible Ukrainian dirty bomb? Should we be worried or is this a tempest in a teapot? Well, as with the assassinations of Iranian scientists, as with uh, the um, destruction of the gas pipeline under the Baltic Sea, um, you know, the, 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 the level of dirty tricks, the level of disinformation, and um, it it would be hard to rule anything out at this point. I mean, the the, the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, and and even Germany in the, in the case of this this pipeline. I mean, the the Europeans seem willing to uh, essentially commit economic suicide at the behest of the United States, and um, it. There's almost no explanation of why Russia would have wanted to destroy its own pipeline. Right. Good evidence that um, the, the USS Kearsage, uh had been in the vicinity um, carrying aboard it the marine teams who, who, who do precisely this kind of um, underwater demolition. Um, and, and who... You know, who had an interest in destroying the pipeline. So, you know, we really don't know. We can't know. These things are hidden and secret. And, um, but, and, and if there is some kind of incident, as you're describing, in Ukraine, again, we come back to, you know, all those leaders at the UN General Assembly. What will the rest of the world think? Who will the rest of the world blame? Will India? Will India? believe that uh, it was Russia that did it and blame Russia for that? Right. They blame Ukraine and its Western backers and believe that that we did it. Um, And you can ask the same question about uh, major countries across the global south, Brazil, um, obviously China, um, Indonesia, Bangladesh, Pakistan, the, the world, you know, the, the world is no longer eating out of America's hand. And, and the world is no longer ready to believe whatever the United States tells it about its own dirty wars. Right. Nick, the Daily Beast uh has recently been beating the the war drums for Ukraine. On Friday, they published an article. I thought it was a very provocative article, not provocative intellectually, but, <laughs> no. but politically and militarily even, essentially calling the Republican House leadership stooges for Vladimir Putin because several of them, like Kevin McCarthy, have called into question the wisdom of just writing a blank check for Ukraine. Why are we not debating this issue nationally here in the United States? Why is everybody who doesn't fall into line considered to just be a Russian patsy? Well, <laughs> um, Medea Benjamin and I wrote a book about this. Yes, indeed. Congratulations, by the way. Uh, yeah, it'll be. It's actually already available for pre-order and being released on November the fifteenth. And it's called "War in Ukraine: Making Sense of a Senseless War." And while we condemn Russia's violation of the UN Charter in invading uh, invading Ukraine, 
we also explore uh, the roles of the roles of the United States and NATO in this crisis, and um, and and in fact, we're uh, we're working on an article right now about really the growing worldwide calls for peace in Ukraine. We wrote one about the UN General Assembly a few weeks ago, and since then there are voices, even American voices, calling for peace. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mike Mullen, right, um, was on ABC News calling calling for peace talks uh, sooner rather than later. Um, and saying that he, you know, we need to back off on all this talk of nuclear war and get back to the table, as he put it. Um, we also have Jack Matlock, the last, uh, the last U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union, and after a 35-year career as a Soviet specialist, yes, he was. He was one of the people translating the messages between um, Khrushchev and Kennedy during the Cuban Missile Crisis at the embassy in Moscow. And um, he is writing uh, absolutely that, that, um, that, that what we need now is a return to peace talks. The, and that the U.S., the U.S.'s involvement in supplying all these arms and in imposing all these sanctions on Russia, gives it a responsibility to find a way out of this crisis. Because right now, U.S. policy is simply uh, deepening the crisis, escalating the war, and and taking a, a more direct role in it. Uh, and and the U.S. has responsibility to its own people and to the world to start backing, finding a way to back for all sides to back out of this crisis, and that includes the United States and NATO. Indeed. That was the voice of Nicholas Davies. He is an independent journalist, a researcher with Code Pink, and the author of the book Blood on Our Hands, The American Invasion and Destruction of Iraq, and the new book, Making War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless War. Thank you for joining us. You're listening to Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We're going to take a short break and come right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name's Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. And we are now going to get into the results from that Chinese Communist Party Congress that concluded this weekend, and not without some drama. Uh, We had former President Hu Jintao escorted from the event's closing ceremony, uh, a very public display, after which he did apparently return uh, to take part in the, you know, closing events. Right. Uh, we also got the news that no women are going to be part of the party's executive committee or Politburo. Uh, we also got the delayed release of China's third quarter economic results, which beat most predictions. 
though they were still lagging behind official targets. Uh, We're also going to talk about, you know, like the substantive policy changes that were announced at that uh, at that Congress. Right. Not just the the leadership drama that could signal China's priorities in the near future. And of course, as expected, we have a third term in leadership for President Xi Jinping. Joining us to discuss what all of this means is independent journalist Christopher Halali. He's also a Ph.D. candidate in philosophy and the China government scholar for Sino-U.S. cultural communication at Tongji University in Shanghai. Christopher, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Can we start with the uh, the big excitement of this episode with Hu Jintao? So he was escorted from the closing ceremony after some discussion with the men who walked him out and a word with President Xi himself. The uh, explanation given after the fact is that Hu wasn't feeling well and he left to rest. And indeed, I see reports that, of course, got a lot less attention that he returned after a period of time. Uh, what happened? And also, th- there's been a lot of speculation as to why the process was so public and suggestions that it did not need to be. So w- what do you make of all of this? Um, to, to, qu- to be quite honest, I'm not sure about, um, you know, what exactly transpired. What I do know and, and what I trust in is the fact that, um, uh, you know, former President uh, Hu Jintao is, of course, uh, an elderly man um, and, uh, of course, not not so well in terms of health. And so I know uh, very well that the Chinese uh, people, uh, having lived there for many years, um, greatly uh, respect uh, and uh, deeply love their elders. And so, um, you know, he might have not been feeling well. And so he was escorted out sometimes, of course, you know, if you have elderly uh, parents or grandparents that sometimes they do so against their will, um, but it's for their best. And uh, what we know is that he returned afterwards. And I think um, part of this um, you know, sort of uh, brouhaha in the media about it is that uh, there's sort of this um, fantasy that this is somehow like, uh, you know, General uh, General Secretary Stalin taking out uh, leaders and purging them. Right. And, uh, you know, this sort of a fantasy anti-communism that they have. Uh, this was a, a respected leader, um, former leader of the, of the party um, who was simply escorted out. Um, for his own well-being um, and brought back in. So I don't see what the big deal is. Of course, the big deal ultimately is uh, all the China watchers, uh, most of whom don't speak Mandarin themselves, <laughs> are there saying, oh, look, you know, this uh, chaos in the in the party, she's authoritarianism, he's trying to reassert his control. But I think that these are all fantasies and delusions of uh, Western media, uh, like we've seen in so many other instances. You know, and I think a part of it, too, is that in many of the U.S. news outlets, they didn't tell us that he was brought back in. Yeah. They didn't show us video of Hu Jintao coming back in. And so many of us were led to believe that, oh, my God, there's some kind of a crisis in the Chinese Communist Party. And it looks like they're going to purge this poor old man yeah. who's dedicated his life to his uh, to his country. If you are if you are Xi Jinping and there is somebody you need to purge, I don't think it's no. the 80 year old former president. No, yeah, I totally yeah. agree. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Go ahead, Christopher. No, I was just going to say that, you know, I think a lot of it, I think a lot of it stems from the fact that um, there's just this, there's this uh, fantasy for the West to concoct uh, all of these um, uh, great crises and to manufacture them on their own when they're non-existent. You can clearly see Hu Jintao is no threat uh, to President Xi and in fact dedicates himself to the party. He sat next to him. So yeah. I just think that it's absolutely asinine to 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 reproduce this kind of uh, propaganda 
uh, and uh, definitely manufactured by the Western media. And I think that uh, it's it's all been overblown. And I think uh, what we've seen from the Chinese media is that he came back and everything is fine. Talk to us also about the absence of women in the party's highest structures. I mean, there were not very many in the previous iteration of the Politburo and the Standing Committee, but there was at least one. Uh, The Communist Party's constitution promises to protect the rights and interests of women and ensures their rights are equal to those of men. But uh, at least apparently for the next term, it doesn't need much input from women in order to do that. And I wonder what what do you think people should understand about this absence of women? Um, my thoughts, my thoughts are, I, I agree that it, it was um, uh, glaring that there was an absence of women um, and something that, uh, you know, we should uh, uh, be concerned about uh, and, uh, you know, maybe do our own uh, analyses um, in dialogue and in consultation with, uh, with uh, the, the party in China. But I do think that uh, the Chinese Communist Party, its delegates at the 20th National Congress and its leadership understand um, in a different way that those who are most qualified, regardless of gender, ethnicity, etc., will rise uh, to the top. And so it is my hope that we see um, a greater uh, diversity moving forward. Of course, we remember Mao's famous slogan that uh, women hold up half the sky. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, definitely it's something that um, caught people off guard. Um, but ultimately, seeing who the people are that... Um, have uh, been uh, elected to the Central Committee and then from there, uh, the Secretariat um, and the Standing Committee, I think that we have uh, very qualified um, leaders uh, for the Chinese Communist Party uh, moving forward. And I think the CPC is gearing towards a more um, turbulent uh, times ahead. And I think that those who are who have been elected and who have been, um, you know, uh, put in those positions have now the great responsibility of navigating those very turbulent seas uh, coming up here, especially in relation to the United States. Yeah. Talk to us about what, you know, also what these policy changes resulting from the Congress uh, infer, because I think that's uh, kind of referenced by the turbulent seas coming up. You have language about Taiwan included in the charter for the first time. Uh, You have people mentioning uh, Xi's frequent mentions of the word security in in his addresses. So what do you think? What do you think uh, the new leadership signifies? What do you think some of these policy changes signify? What uh, what do you anticipate uh, in changes, perhaps, in Chinese policy in the near future? My my reading of the situation and, of course, following um, uh, since the previous plenums that have happened over the past uh, a few years uh, have has been that the, 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 the Communist Party um, of China is gearing towards um, a confrontation. Uh, it's its whole positioning is moving towards defense because it, I think it has finally realized the party structures and the party as a whole, as well as the Chinese nation, have realized that. Um, this sort of a strategic partnership with the United States and with the Western countries um, and sort of this idea that economics can solve a lot of the underlying political and geopolitical problems um, has proven uh, to not work. Uh, it's been ineffective. And in fact, the reverse has happened, that the, that the U.S., its EU partners and NATO at, uh, in a larger sense have slowly closed the noose on China 
And uh, now, of course, with Taiwan being at the focal point, we, re- we remember just uh, not too long ago, uh, you know, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit, um, which was a huge shock uh, to the political uh, situation um, in regards to Taiwan. I think that the that you know China's uh, even um, uh, renunciation of force, which they didn't uh, fully renunciate the use of force. They've said that they will use force if it is between separatists and foreign powers that seek to stifle, um, you know, the Chinese nation, the reunification, the peaceful reunification of Taiwan, which is what they want. But they will reserve the right to use force. And I think that what we are seeing now, and we are seeing that especially with a few key people on the standing committee, is uh, people who understand the United States, not necessarily as an economic partner, but as um, not only an ideological, um, but also a a political and a military and military enemy uh, in that way, and at least uh, an opponent uh, in this um, Asia Pacific region. So I think that we have to really understand that the 20th uh, National Congress was the first Congress in a long time, um, I would say since uh, Chairman Mao, that we have been geared towards, again, uh, sort of uh, defending the headquarters, uh, defending the nation, um, instead of opening up reform and further economic cooperation, we're seeing a much more defensive posture. And I think that that's where we are headed uh, at this point. And that's what the U.S. and the West want, in my opinion. They want confrontation. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because you you are using the term defensive, but a lot of this is also spun as aggression by China uh, without often the mention that the United States in its own recently issued security, uh, national security strategy, again, explicitly mentions China. And we've been very uh, incoherent in our formal do- language about China, right? Saying on one hand that we don't want competition, but on the other hand, <laughs> identifying them as uh, a serious enemy at the most serious threat to security and to the, you know, the quote unquote rules based international order, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, it is unsurprising that you would see these defensive moves uh, made by China. And yeah, I mean, something the U.S., if, even if it doesn't want, sure, certainly should expect. Um, I, I want to ask finally Absolutely. about Europe also, because sort of caught in the middle here, especially because Europe um, in, for the most part, no longer has access to Russian energy. Um, Its relationship with China, its economic relationship with China, uh, takes on some more weight. But of course, the continent is in a period of of hand-wringing about its relationships with China as well. So they are fretting that they're too dependent on China, but also fretting, you know, sometimes more quietly, that they don't want to merely be an extension of American policy on China, right? Europe uh, has its own needs and theoretically, should be able to form its own economic and political relationships. And so I wonder, where does where does Europe find itself, right, uh, in in this sort of new Cold War between the U.S. and China? And is, is there some kind of point that the continent can find to maintain its relationship with China uh, without sacrificing some of its relationship with the U.S.? I think uh, ultimately um, what this shows um, this in terms of because you have two things happening simultaneously. You have a special military operation which is ongoing in Ukraine um, that the Russian Federation is carrying out um, along with its partners. And you have the relationship of the European Union with China. And what you have now is that China has been triangled into this relationship of the EU with Russia because, of course, the EU um, sees 
the um, special relationship that the Russian Federation and the People's Republic of China have with one another and sees that as a major threat because they see that uh, China's um, unwillingness to denounce, according to them, uh, in the UN and other um, spaces, uh, international forum, the special military operation, um, even though they consistently say that they are against, uh, you know, uh, uh, any taking of, of uh, territory or violation of sovereignty. Um, you see that this is now the crux of the main uh, issue for the European leaders. And recently at an EU meeting, you had the beginning of these divisions uh, appear. So, for example, the Baltic states have taken a much more hawkish approach to China because vis-a-vis -vis Russia, because uh, they realize that uh, China uh, and Russia are indistinguishable for one another, according to them. Whereas you have some leaders, for example, like Viktor Orban in Hungary, as well as other um, countries in the periphery. We can't forget, for example, China has a major foothold uh, in uh, key countries and key sectors. For example, the port of Piraeus in Greece, right, in Athens, um, a key strategic um, hub for trade in the Mediterranean and to the wider world. And of course, uh, Costco, uh, you know, which is owned, um, a Chinese-owned company, um, is in control of the port now. They have uh, they have the rights to the port. So I think you're seeing a division amongst European leaders, some of whom, like um, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who now is going to visit um, Xi Jinping. He'll be the first European leader to visit Xi Jinping after the 20th National Congress. He's saying that we have to separate China and Russia and maintain good strategic relations economically with China, whereas others are taking a hawkish approach. So you're seeing that these fissures are going to eventually pin some European countries against uh, each other. And it also shows the weakness of the European Union as a political bloc. And Schultz is, of course, getting quite a lot of heat and, uh, you know, he, he can't catch a break. Right? No, <laughs> Schultz can't catch I mean, a break. He can't do anything right <laughs> yeah. right now. And so, of course, this isn't right either, you know, trying to figure out how his country is going to continue to uh, be able to provide energy to its industry and heat to its homes. Uh, what, a, what a criminal, what a villain. That was Christopher right. Halali. He's a PhD candidate in philosophy and he's China government scholar for Sino-U.S. cultural communication at Tongji University. Christopher, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Take care. You too. You know, you mentioned earlier this uh, press conference and uh, you you uh, shot me a little note mm. saying that FBI Director Christopher Wray is also going to participate. Well, mm. there are other participants now being announced. Uh, this is for the 130 uh, press conference at DOJ. Merrick Garland will lead it. He'll be joined by Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco, FBI Director Christopher Wray, Assistant Attorney General for National Security. Matthew Olson and other Justice Department officials. Um, NBC News is speculating that this has something to do with the election. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And it says, interestingly, Interesting. that Justice Department officials generally avoid taking law enforcement action that could affect voting within 60 days of an election. Well, the election is two weeks from tomorrow. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we have to wait and see. We we really don't know what this is about. Did you see this is Politico saying it's threats to the nation's election infrastructure. Uh-huh. That's what they're going to say. Hmm. Well, maybe boy, it's oh boy. maybe it's domestic in the end. I don't to the election infrastructure. I don't know, man, are they going to come out and say Iran's trying to like hack into the election system or Russia again? Or Russia. You know, they're yeah. going to make the accusation again. God forbid. I I don't know. 
I mean, of course, the headline over the weekend that we, you know, haven't gotten to is this, these armed poll watchers in Arizona oh, right, who are camped out outside ballot boxes. Problem. So I suspect the if there is a real threat to our election infrastructure, it is coming it's, from it's inside internal. the House. Yeah, Correct. yeah. Correct. But this is all speculation at this point. We yep. will uh, we will see at one thirty. Yeah. Very odd. I also uh, <laughs> want to tell our listeners that I found, I found a girlfriend for you, John. Yeah, I, the, I like it. She's the woman who finds recipes on tombstones and tries them, which is fun. I, I'm just kind of jealous. I've I seen try recipes that. on tombstones. I haven't ever. Yeah, there's one in uh, in Columbia Gardens right here in Arlington, Virginia. Um, not only is there a recipe for, for chocolate chip cookies on the tombstone, but there's a URL. It's like www.martinezfamily.com. And I went to it. One, I went to it twice. The first time it's like, oh, you know, it's it, it, family photos and this is our mom and she died mm-hmm. and she was great. And then I went again and it was down. The site was down. So it's no longer being maintained. But mm-hmm. people do this all the time. I went to a, a grave in Princeton, New Jersey, uh, oh, a couple of months ago. It had the man's or the woman's name and birth date and death date. And underneath it said, I told you I was sick. Oh, no. <laughs> Okay, that's funny. I enjoy those. <laughs> Recipes are new to me. I like it. I feel like for some reason my soul is revolting at the idea of a URL on a gravestone. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah. I Plus, mean, the I don't want to criticize people who do it, so quickly. don't put one on mine, please. No, no, no. I, I don't want that either. No, but feel free to throw cookies on there if you want to. <laughs> all right, we're going to take a quick break here. We got a, we've got a whole lot to get into yeah, in the next hour. We're going to be all over the place. It's going to be fun. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Woody here with John Kiriakou, and we've got we got a lot. We're going to get into education. I've got some economic questions. We're going to talk about homelessness. We're going to talk about the Trump Organization's trial beginning and what we mm-hmm. might expect from that. There's a there's a whole lot happened. Oh man, there's Elon Musk and national security. The guy can't stay out of the news. Yeah. Uh, and also, John and I just dipped into a little rabbit hole about this uh, this one thirty press conference. It looks like it might be a sort of kitchen sink situation. Yeah, it does. It's going to be Russia, also China, also non-state actors, dark horse, maybe ISIS coming back to try to <laughs> hack our hack our elections. And also Politico pointing out that just um, less than two weeks ago, you had the uh, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency saying they were not aware of any specific or credible threats to compromise or disrupt election infrastructure. That'd right. be a pretty big change. That was from October 13th. But like you said. A lot can happen in 10 days, apparently. And there's a lot happening in Arizona where where these wackadoos in, in camouflage and with tactical gear and weapons are standing around uh, voter or ballot drop-off boxes. Mm-hmm. They they claim to protect the integrity of the election. John, where do you think those camouflage suits were made? China. Exactly. <laughs> I don't want to make, I mean, you know, who knows, who knows what's actually going on, but... Uh, I, we'll have to wait till one thirty. We got a lot to get into before that. Uh, joining us for this conversation is author and economist Jack Rasmus. Jack, thanks for being here. My pleasure. 
Let's start with uh, with education. Uh, today, the National Assessment of Educational Progress released its full report for the first time since 2019. This report assesses scores from fourth and eighth graders. And unsurprisingly, U.S. students are performing worse in reading and math across the board. Perhaps more surprisingly was the scale. Uh, not a single state saw scores increase. Scores fell among both better and worse performers. Uh, so in 2022, the average fourth grade math score decreased by five points to its lowest level since 2005. The average eighth grade math score decreased by eight paint points to its lowest level since 2003. The declines are the steepest recorded since testing began more than 50 years ago. And though I think anyone would have predicted that learning gets harder in an environment where everybody is trying to invent how to learn all the time. Um, U.S. Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona still called the results uh, appalling and unacceptable. He said, we're at a moment of truth for education and how we respond to this will determine not only our recovery, but our nation's standing in the world. I don't have any idea what they are proposing as we, you know, enter another school year with another COVID wave on the horizon. And so I wonder, you know, what you what you make of this administration's potential to respond to this adequately. Well, you know, the data that you report is aggregate data. Yeah. But I'm sure if they dug down into it, they would find mostly working class and poor people uh, suffered the most in terms of uh, loss of school years. I mean, some of them lost two full years. Uh, not not so much, uh, you know, the uh, upper classes uh, who were able to do uh, remote learning and had some help at home maybe and had the facilities. Uh, but, you know, the working class kids, uh, the brown and black kids, uh, those are the ones who really got uh, ripped off here with, uh, you know, this uh, shutting down of the schools, which went on uh, much too long uh, than it should have. And, uh, uh, you know, that's that's the source of the real problem. It, it's it's a racial uh, problem to a large extent, I think, uh, and a class problem. Poor kids uh, did not have the equipment, did not have uh, anyone at home to help them, maybe didn't even have Internet connection, you know, and they went out of school for uh, a year and a half, two years. And that's that's the result that we have here. It also seems like we might be heading into exactly the same situation again. But with even it's sort of like if at first uh, you could say, oh, no, we're caught by surprise. We're trying to figure this all out. Now it just seems like we are ignoring what might be about to happen. We have cases of COVID, hospitalizations and deaths all up over the past week, cases up by 17 percent around the country. Uh, and yet simultaneously, of course, COVID funding has has run dry. Uh, apparently, the government wants people to get uh, vaccine boosters for the fall. I have not really seen any any strong messaging on that topic coming from the administration. And so, again, you know, it feels like we're heading right back into the same situation where more people are going to be getting sick. There is going to be some increased debate about what level of gathering is safe and what kind of mitigation measures we need. And yet it seems like the government has just decided this isn't happening and it's going to ignore it. Yeah, well, a couple comments on that. Um, you know, <laughs> they cut all the relief funds. There isn't even any money now for yeah. government covering covering testing. And I just saw the other day that Pfizer has plans to charge $135 a test kit. 
You know, wow. the people are even going to get uh, tested. Um, but also an interesting data point is, uh, you know, the CDC even reported that uh, I think it was uh, 74% of the people who have died from COVID since this thing began were over the age of 55 and 90% over the age of 65. In terms of death, uh, this is a problem of uh, people with uh, weakened and uh, immune system problems, you know, and those younger who are dying have immune system problems uh, or, you know, they're excessively obese, which seems to be linked to severe um, consequences with COVID. Uh, This wasn't a disease for kids. It never was. And in some ways, it's almost criminal that they shut down the schools the way they did uh, for so long. Uh, that was not a solution and, and probably wasn't really necessary. Uh, so, you know, that's an interesting uh, factoid that people ought to keep in mind. It's mostly uh, uh, severe for um, uh, elderly people, not for children. Uh, so, you know, it looks like we're heading in the same uh, direction, but there's no no financial funding support this time around. They cut all the COVID relief out, uh, but boy, they're sure uh, adding uh, every every day, every week, uh, money, more money for Ukraine and the war on the other side of the world that the U.S. people have no interest in at all. This is a thing of the elites in the American Empire, uh, and uh, boy, there's lots of money for that. But there's no money anymore uh, to protect kids uh, and uh, the population from from COVID or health issues. And uh, they're even planning now, once the Republicans take over Congress, I believe, uh, they're even planning now to go after Social Security. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, make make the uh, the elderly pay <laughs> uh, for the war. We've already uh, made everybody else pay for, uh, you know, not reviewing, uh, renewing uh the COVID relief as it begins to emerge again. Yeah. Yeah. And I would also suspect that some of these, uh, you know, these kids who've been most affected by uh, the lack of access to education are also more likely to live in multi-generational households. So you, again, you have this sort of like uh, getting the worst of all, of all situations with a government that seems to have just decided now nah, this is not something we need any more money for or attention for. Go get your, go get your booster. there available. You know, you're on your own, kid. Um, well, I, you know, austerity is coming. Yeah, you know, yes, they're preparing it. Uh, that's that's very clear, and they do this all the time. You know, they they throw some money at folks when there's a deep crisis, like there was in 2008. You know, and then COVID this time around. Uh, but as soon as it's over, uh, they they come and they uh, take even more back. Like Obama, um, you know, his rescue plan was 787 billion in 2009. In August of 2011, he agrees with uh, the Republican Congress because he lost Congress. Uh, to take back one and a half trillion dollars in uh, social spending, one and a half trillion. So he gave with one hand, and he took away twice with the other. And of course, Biden has given, uh, and now they're going to take it back there. Let me also ask you uh, about these stories that Japan's central bank has to keep intervening in foreign currency exchanges to keep the yen afloat. Uh, The country formally intervened a few weeks ago. It was the first time in 24 years that the central bank had stepped in to buy yen on the international market to prevent currency instability that it said came from speculation. 
Reportedly, Japan did the same thing again on Friday, though its leadership has not confirmed the move. Uh, the Japanese PM Saturday merely said, we remain on high alert toward the foreign exchange market and will take appropriate actions against excessive moves. We won't tolerate volatile moves due to speculative trading. Um, Japan's currency has already fallen in value by 20% over the course of the year. It doesn't look like that's going to stop because the fundamental problem seems to be the interest rate gap between the U.S. and Japan. The U.S. has been steadily raising interest rates. Japan has not wanted to do this. And so I'm, I'm curious what fallout you see here. I mean, Japan has the third biggest economy uh, in the world. And, you know, the, 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 this fight to keep the yen afloat seems like it has the potential to be more than just sort of an economic sideshow. Yeah, well, uh, you know, not only the yen, but uh, the euro and the pound and all of the currencies have fallen more than 20, 25 percent as well. It's a global currency crash going on. And as you point out, the simple reason is the policies coming out of the U.S., specifically the monetary policy, the central bank, the Fed, raising interest rates uh, at record pace here. When you raise the interest rates, the dollar rises, appreciates in relationship to those interest rates. And because the dollar is the global currency, all other currencies uh, decline reciprocally, right? Because they're all linked to the dollar. So if the dollar goes up, the others go down. And what do the other countries have to do to prevent the collapse of their currency? Uh, well, they can raise their interest rates as well and push their economies into recession. Or they can take whatever dollar. Uh, currency they have, dollars they have, and they can go out and buy their currency to prop it up to keep it from collapsing. That's what's happening in, in Japan right now, because Japan has has the dollars. Japan has $1.1 trillion that is accumulated uh, from the Fed, you know, buying their treasuries over the years. It's the largest holder of treasuries now, because uh, China used to have about $1.1 trillion. They've been dumping slowly their dollars. They're at less than $1 trillion now. So now you've got Japan dumping their dollars uh, in order to try to protect their, their currency. It's very ominous. The locus of international uh, financial instability has now moved, in my opinion. Uh, it hasn't really left, but it's moved uh, the U.K. with its recent problems. Uh, banks in Europe, like Credit Suisse, with their problems. Uh, China property problems. Uh, but now the locus here is in Japan. Uh, and we'll, it's going to be interesting to see what happens uh, short term uh, in terms of currency instability uh, as the Fed keeps raising rates. Uh, but it also has relevance here. Last comment, it has relevance for the ability of the United States to get dollars uh, that it's been pushing out into the world because of its trade deficit for decades, to have those dollars recycled. It's important for the U.S. to recycle those dollars because that's how the U.S. covers its trillion-dollar budget deficit every year. You see, this is what's called the twin deficits. We run a trade deficit on purpose with the rest of the world on the understanding they will buy treasuries, that money will come back, and that's what we use to cover the budget deficit. And if if uh, China and Japan in particular don't recycle those dollars anymore but dump them, uh, then we have a greater budget deficit, and we have to decide, we meaning the ruling elites, uh, how are they going to close that deficit? Are they going to raise taxes on the rich? Well, they're not going to do that. We <laughs> 
especially since Trump's $5 trillion tax cut. They're, they don't want to touch that. Both parties don't want to touch that. Or do they cut spending? Well, we see they're not cutting the war and defense spending. So where do you think they're going to have to cut? Well, we all know it's Social Security and Social Spending and so forth. It's austerity, and we're back where we we are in terms of austerity, making the people pay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to ask also, you know, speaking of China, we got the news that China's economy grew by 3.9 percent in the third quarter. Uh, the, that release had been delayed. And as with anything China does, you know, there was a ton of speculation. Ooh, what, what are they going to say? What What's it going to be? Why have they held this information back? Doesn't seem to be because it was particularly bad. You know, it it was better performance than I think a lot of uh, Western entities had predicted. It was uh, short of what they had wanted. On Thursday, we will get uh, news about the U.S. economy. And I wonder what you predict we are going to see. Well, uh, I predict uh, it's going to be positive, but very low low, you know, and that's coming, and, and that's interesting because we're coming off of two quarters in the first half of the year with the, the economy contracted. They don't want to call that a recession. You know, they've been avoiding that word, their media, and so forth. We were in and are in a recession, but that recession, uh, notwithstanding a modest uh, little recovery here instead of a big, you know, uh, surge, uh, is The consensus is we're going deeper into a session here in the fourth quarter, especially the first quarter. Uh, Even Citibank research uh, predicted 100% chance of recession in 2023, 100%. You know, we are going deeper into a recession. The Fed is going to continue raising rates because uh, the Fed rate increases cannot deal with all of inflation. They can deal with demand-side inflation, but most of our inflation is supply-side. It's global supply chains. It's sanctions on commodities and oil in the world. Uh, it's uh, corporate price gouging. Uh, and that the Fed rate hikes uh, can do nothing about. So even if we have a deep recession next year, which I, I believe so, uh, we'll, what we're going to have is still 4 4.5% inflation. Yeah. I, and it doesn't seem like... It doesn't seem like any news that we get on Thursday is going to affect the the Fed's plan one way or another. No, no way. No way. The Fed has has indicated it's going to keep raising rates uh, until it uh, sees some kind of retreat in the inflation rate. And then it will keep raising rates, but maybe not quite as fast. Oh, it's interesting uh, to watch the stock markets. Uh, every time it looks like, oh, maybe the Fed isn't going to raise 75 basis points, uh, you know, all the Pollyannas start plowing back in. That, that happened just recently for the third time in three months uh, and started uh, buying up stocks once again. Uh, you know, the problem is over the last decade, uh, trillions, and I mean trillions of dollars, has been accumulated in the hands of professional investors and, and 1% in the wealthy class. And they are so, uh, there's such a, a, a money glut held by those people especially the professional institutions, uh, you know, hedge funds, equity firms, and so forth, uh, they've got to, on the first sign, they've got to make that money work, and they throw it back in, into the market. Uh, and, and that's where you get this, this volatility going on. Uh, but uh, that's not the real economy. The real economy is uh, uh, we are uh, uh, in, in a kind of, uh, what they call it, a bear market bounce here. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of recovery, but it's going to, all the, all the consensus is it's, it's going to go south again. Uh, I believe in the 
you know, by the time late fourth quarter occurs, uh, but certainly first quarter of next year, uh, especially if they continue with austerity and throwing throwing money away on the military and wars. Uh, and behind it all is this uh, this unknown uh, uh, gray eminence of a global financial crisis. You know, the more you raise the rates, the more you see frank fractures occurring, you know, uh, pension plans in the UK, Credit Suisse, and, uh, you know, and now you see it in Japan and so forth. Uh, they keep pushing this. Uh, they're going to push it into a financial instability event, which I've already predicted for over a year will occur when the Fed policy rate, the short-term rate, hits four and a half, five percent And they're all right on the cusp of that right now. A couple more increases, and they're going to push some of these uh, institutions uh, and markets, financial markets, over the cliff. And then uh, you got even worse uh, real economy downturn. Let's also talk for a minute about Donald Trump and his organization. The Trump Organization's criminal fraud trial starts today in New York. The organization, so I guess two entities within Trump Organization face 14 counts of things like tax fraud, larceny, and falsifying business records relating to allegations that it provided untaxed uh, compensation to executives in the form of, among other things, an apartment and some cars. And so uh, providing employees compensation this way helps the organization get out of taxes that it would have had to pay on this kind of compensation. Um, Donald Trump personally is not on trial here. It is some business entities. And if they are convicted, they would face maximum fines of $1.6 million dollars that's the most allowed under New York state law. Uh, the company wouldn't be res- dissolved. There wouldn't be any other uh, business consequences for it. Um, and so I wonder how important you think this trial is for Trump's uh, political future. I did read that figure, 1.6 million again. 1.6 million dollars. Come on. That's all that's going to, I mean, okay, sorry. That just, that would barely dissuade me from doing anything wrong. Uh, what, do you, what do you think, Jack? It's political theater. Uh, all, all this stuff going after Trump is political theater. Uh, it's all part of uh, trying to make Trump the issue in, in elections. And as you say, uh, some people below Trump will get their hands slapped. Look, Steve Bannon refuses to go before Congress. And what does he get? It's a felony. What does he get? You know, he gets four months in jail in a nice white collar jail somewhere. Right. And sixty five hundred dollar fine. You think anybody is going to bother to with that precedent, bother uh, to um, respond to congressional uh, uh, subpoenas? I mean, uh, and that's one example of what's going on. It's mostly political theory. But, you know, I don't think the uh, electorate and, and American people really give a damn about that. So preoccupied now with the problems in the, in the economy, uh, but the Democrats keep pushing. You know, January sixth, they keep pushing anti-Trump. They think that this is a uh, uh, 2020, and that's that's an issue. Uh, at the same time, you know, the uh, Biden hypes these three bills, which are really subsidies for corporations, and have no effect here this year. He's hyping those as the solution. Uh, he does these token things about inflation. You know, releasing the oil from the petroleum reserve which has no effect at all, virtually. Uh, I mean, the Democrats have nothing going for them. And I believe they're, they're about to uh, get wiped out again, and the Republicans are going to take over Congress, and they're really going to push uh, the austerity, the social austerity. You, you've heard it from McCarthy already, right? It's a deficit. That's the code word. 
but they'll push their deficit issue uh, and keep uh, throwing money at Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, I want to say absolutely go go after big corporations that dodge taxes for sure. But you have to, in addition to this all being political theater, it's like, what is $1.6 million going to do to any, you know? I mean, you can't even pretend that you're going to discourage the behavior with fines like that. Every single thing about this is is just theater. Um, I also want to ask, Jack, what is going on on the West Coast? Uh, There is a big debate in Portland right now over how to deal with skyrocketing homelessness. You have Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler announcing a plan to ban unauthorized homeless encampments, of which there are apparently more than 700 in the city, encompassing some 3,000 people. Um, He wants to ban camping on city streets and direct people to three designated campsites, which, you know, so he's not just saying get out of here and and disappear into thin air. But these campsites uh, don't exist yet. There's no funding for them yet. He's got to figure out how to do that. And also the sites could eventually serve 500 people. You have 3,000 unsheltered people right now. He also says he intends to pave the way for the construction of 20,000 additional housing units, which is great. It's not going to solve the immediate problem. Should have been done yesterday. I think, so this is interesting to me. I I, I was looking this up. Uh, Washington, D.C. has the highest number of homeless people per capita in the United States. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. Also, but D.C. is relatively small. Mm -hmm. And so this is kind of concentrated. Whereas like if you go walking, like if you're walking around LA, I mean, I have never in my life seen a block long uh, homeless encampments like this. And Portland looks like a similar scene. So I think despite the fact that like in the, in the heart of DC, you can certainly understand what it is like to, uh, you know, what it is like to be confronted every day with the reality that there are more and more people who can't afford basic shelter in this country or who so tr- who are so troubled they can't, you know, uh, exist in the in the society that we have created. But I think aside from that, I think the level of, of homelessness in some West Coast cities is beyond what people in the rest of the country can really get their heads around. And so. I mean, I have some sympathy for for Wheeler. He's he's not trying to ban camping in some places without providing space in others. He seems to have some relatively immediate ideas coupled with some long term ones. But the homeless population of Portland, according to him, has jumped by 50 percent since 2019. And none of these encampments in different places are going to solve that problem. Right. I mean, it's wild that we are saying it's somehow reasonable to just ask Americans to not camp because they can't afford homes on streets, but go camp because you can't afford homes in a park. And so I wanted to ask, you know, what what is going on? Uh, and and it, are there any actual reasonable plans for attempting to address this, this homelessness crisis? Uh, no, I don't think there are. Um you know, long-term plans. Uh, this is an urban problem. You have uh, all this uh, homelessness, mostly in, in urban centers here, uh, which means it's a cost of living problem yeah. uh, and, uh, and or availability even of uh, of housing problem. And that's that's been building for a couple of decades now, right? You know, we're only home, home prices. And now, of course, we have general inflation, which is higher than the 8%. Now, I won't go into technicalities why. I think it's really 10 to 12%. But, uh, you know, and it, that drives a lot of people uh, either onto the street or into some kind of temporary uh, living, you know, uh, 
you know, the campers and so forth. And like in San Jose, California, uh, you've got these uh, uh, people who are who are working, working class people yeah. living in their campers, you know, yeah. not on on the sidewalk that you see in downtown San Francisco, uh, but they're living in their campers. That's another example of unaffordability uh, of, and the inflation that's that's going on uh, and the lack of uh, support, uh, social support programs. Uh, uh, so all that, uh, plus, you know, the, the, the problem of the homeless, uh, it's not just, quote, homeless. Uh, there are different groupings within the yep. community there, uh, and some of them uh, are are just people who are uh, you know addicted. Uh, the addiction level is is so great now in in certain cities with fentanyl and so forth. Uh, they're addicted uh, uh, and they're mentally ill. A lot of them are mentally ill. Then there's this layer of people who are just, uh, you know, uh, unemployed uh, recently or working class here, and then they can't uh, afford to live in a normal place either. Um, there, there's going to have to be uh, some kind of a, a massive uh, affordable housing building in, in the cities, in the urban centers that is uh, subsidized. Uh, because, you know, you can build this stuff, and if it's too expensive, people can't afford it. You know, a lot of them aren't even working. and More aren't going to be working very soon here. Uh, this homeless problem is going to balloon. You think it's a problem now, you wait a year from now. Uh, when the recession really hits, then you really see a problem. Uh, but, no, they have no solution. Except, I mean, like the little Dutch boy putting his finger in the dam, you know. Mm-hmm. We'll move them from here, and we'll put some of them in here, and and you know we'll get on the evening news, and it'll look like we're doing something. We'll get reelected. Uh, that's really what's what's going on. Uh, it's a fundamental problem of uh, standard of living for you know most people going down, and uh, this is just a housing reflection of that. Finally, because I said we were going to go all over the place in the conversation, I wanted to ask what you make of this sort of back and forth about Elon Musk, Twitter and national security. Uh, We had a report by Bloomberg late last week that the U.S. was considering a national security review of Musk's proposed purchase of Twitter because they're worried about foreign investors from Saudi Arabia, Qatar and China being involved in the deal which is the most laughable aspect to me. Uh, The White House, to be fair, has denied any plans for such review, says we don't know what you're talking about. Musk online, at least, has treated the the idea as hilarious. Um, But I I wonder what you make of of just how political this entire process has gotten. And also, sorry, it would be a surprise to me that the United States is suddenly worried about investment from Saudi Arabia and Qatar. Uh, well, you know, I think it has something to do with uh, Musk's Starlink system. You know, Starlink is his low-level satellite that he's uh, uh, been letting the U.S. government use uh, over Ukraine, which has played a big role in allowing uh, U- Ukraine to target, uh, you know, Russian uh, ammunition uh, and, and forces and so forth. Big role. Uh, and But now uh, Musk uh, raised the thing that, you know, he wants to get paid for it, you know. Uh, so, you know, that kind of raised the red flag uh, to them, I think, them meaning, uh, you know, the U.S. Uh, empire and the military. Uh, and and then he gets into this uh, innocuous kind of uh, on Twitter uh, exchange with this this Medvedev, you know, in Russia. Yeah. And just read it. It's nothing, you know. It's just two guys uh, saying something. And uh, that really... Uh, 
uh, got the hackles up of uh, Ukraine and uh, the neocons in, in the U.S. establishment. So I, I think they're going after him or threatening to go after him uh, as a way of putting pressure on him to continue playing ball with his Starlink system and, his, and, and stop uh, – you know, conversing in any way. He, you know, the U.S. doesn't want the big capitalists conversing with capitalists in Russia. You know, they want to shut that door, and they pretty much have. Um, but this guy's kind of a maverick. He kind of does what he wants to do. So they're, they're, they're putting a couple of shots across the bow, his bow here, and giving them some warnings. Uh, I think that's what's going on right now. Author and economist Jack Rasmus, always great to have you on the show. Where should our listeners go to find more of your work? Uh, well, jackrasmus.com uh, is my blog. You can catch me there. Uh, catch me on uh, uh, Twitter at drjackrasmus, where I talk about things day to day. And then, uh, you know, I have a radio show on the Progressive Radio Network on Fridays called Alternative Visions, uh, where I just let go and, uh, you know, express my views on what's going on uh, that particular week. So any of those sources. Lots of places to go. All right, Jack, great to talk to you today. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back and get into what is going on in Israel and Palestine and how Mm -hmm. we are able to talk about it in the United States. All that coming up here on Political Misfits. We are live in D.C. We're on Radio Sputnik. We'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Localities around the country, including right here in the Washington area, are seeking to redefine the word anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism of any kind or racism of any kind is, of course, wrong. But there's a big difference between anti-Semitism and being pro-Palestinian. Why is it that localities, states, organizations, and other entities want to classify any criticism of Israel or of Israel's policies as anti-Semitic? And don't forget that 33 states demand that contractors now sign a loyalty pledge to Israel before being allowed to do business in those states. What's the end game in all of this? We're joined by Miko Peled. Miko is a human rights activist and the author of the books The General's Son, The Journey of an Israeli in Palestine, and Injustice, the story of the Holy Land Foundation 5. Welcome back, Miko. Good to be with you. How are you? Um, well, thanks. I, I'm sorry that we've let so much time pass again. So happy to have you. You recently posted something on Twitter that caught the attention of a lot of people. You spoke about efforts in Montgomery County, Maryland, to redefine anti-Semitism. A county council vote was postponed in June after an outpouring of opposition. But that vote is coming up again soon. Something similar is happening in Fairfax County, Virginia, and has already happened in Arlington, Virginia. These are these are three of the most populous counties in the Washington area. What exactly are these county councils seeking to do and why? Well, what they're seeking to do is to appease the Zionist groups within these within the within these counties um, and to make sure that Israel is not criticized and that the legitimacy of Zionism, which is a racist ideology, which produced a racist state, is never questioned, because that's what this is about. 
and they they mask it as an attempt to fight anti-Semitism. So the preamble is, well, since you know anti-Semitism is on the rise, you know, throughout the country, uh, then we need to, you know, we need to hunker up and we need to work and talk more about racism. And here's what we're going to do: we're going to pass a resolution that has absolutely nothing to do with fighting racism, has absolutely nothing to do with fighting anti-Semitism. It has everything to do with gagging people and with promoting a state that is known to be an apartheid state. Um, and by the way, we're going to do this without any public debate and when nobody's watching and nobody's paying attention because we don't really want any attention given to the process of, uh, of uh, passing this, uh, this resolution and, and, and accepting, adopting this new uh, definition of anti-Semitism. And nobody even asked, what's wrong with the old definition of anti-Semitism? Anti-Semitism is racism that is targeting Jewish people. What more do we need? Why do we need to have Israel 10 times or however many times it is in that new definition? Why does Israel even have to come into play in this right. at all? Right. Yeah. What Montgomery County is proposing is a non-binding resolution that would adopt the International Holocaust Remembrance, Remembrance definition of anti-Semitism. How is this different from any other definition of anti-Semitism? And why do you think the change would be so dangerous. And you know what? On the flip side, why is the change necessary at all in the first place? Well, that's that, those are all exactly the right questions to ask. Um, they uh, the the difference is that anti-Semitism, as it is, as everybody knows it, everybody's always known it, which is racism directed at Jewish people, um, is just that it is racism against Jewish people, and it is absolutely it should have. Should be not shouldn't be tolerated just like any other racism should not be tolerated. This has nothing to do with racism against Jewish people. This has to do with maintaining, or I should say, controlling the conversation on the legitimacy of the state of Israel. Now that the you know the apartheid, the term apartheid is out of the box, and everybody talks about this. You know all the reports. Um, you know, including the Amnesty International report, which clearly states and shows that Israel is an apartheid state, uh, is out there. They are terrified that the conversation on the legitimacy of the state of Israel will continue and become stronger, which it actually is. And so what they're doing, they're passing these, they they call them non-binding resolutions, Mm -hmm. same time, now people feel that this is anti-Semitism, that if you're criticizing Israel, beyond a point that Zionists are comfortable with. And if you are questioning the legitimacy of the state of Israel, which I do, and many people and everybody actually should, then you are now anti-Semitic. And so it's easier to fight somebody by calling them anti-Semitic than to argue that you're not an apartheid state when you actually are. Right. This resolution would, on the face of things, define anti-Semitism as, quote, a certain perception of Jews, which may be expressed as hatred toward Jews, unquote. That sounds perfectly fine, of course. But then it gives 11 examples of what anti-Semitism might look like. Some of these examples, including, I'm sorry, include equating Zionism with racism or drawing comparisons of Israeli policies with those of the Nazis. Do you see this as a slippery slope? Oh, absolutely. This is very dangerous because Israel is a racist endeavor. I think calling Israel a racist endeavor is one of the categories that they mention. And 
questioning the legitimacy of Israel, which they say, according to that definition, in other words, they go on and, 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 and explain on and on that if you question the legitimacy of Israel or call Israel a racist endeavor, then you are denying Jewish people the right to self-determination. Well, Jewish people have their own self-determination based on the country in which they live, because being Jewish is not a national identity, it is a religion. That's why you have American Jews and French Jews and right. Polish Jews and on and on and on. So what they're doing is they're mixing their own ideas of what people should think about Jews and what Jew and how Jews should identify themselves into uh, into this whole into this whole equation, which is very very strange and com- should should be rejected, uh, you know, completely because it has nothing to do with uh, fighting anti-Semitism. In fact, it has everything to do with supporting a racist ideology and an apartheid state. Mm-hmm. You know, Donald Trump uh, stepped into this again the other day, last week, uh, when he said on Truth Social that American Jews need to get with the program because he was the most pro-Israel president in American history, and so they should all be Republicans because presumably... If you're Jewish, then you automatically have to be pro-Israel on literally everything that you're told to be pro-Israel on. This is an increasingly uh, uh, big problem, in my view, for the Republican Party. This blind faith, not just toward Israel, but toward the Israeli political right wing. Uh, How do we change this? Well, how we change this is we tell the truth and we keep reminding people that um, none of this has anything to do with anti-Semitism or with Judaism. But Donald Trump, in many ways, you know, you can't blame him for saying this because American Jews demanded for years and years and years that American president do things. And he was and he actually did them. He actually fulfilled these the things that they demanded. And then, you know, these, you know, these damn Jews, these damn liberals. Oh, my God, you can't trust them. Now they turn their back on him, you know. That kind of thing. You know, he did. He did a lot of. He did things that no American president did. And if there is a correlation between American Jews or Jews in general around the world and Israel, then indeed all Jews should be grateful to Donald Trump. But we know that that is not the case. Jewish people have nothing to do. Jewish people who are not in Israel have nothing to do with Israel. You know, they are loyal citizens of whatever country uh, they happen to live in. And and this definition and this whole Zionist, um, you know, perspective is actually casting doubt as to the actual loyalty of Jewish people, because are they part of Israel or are they part of the country in which they live? And when, and when you know, Jewish leaders at the turn of the pre- previous century, the beginning of the, 20, of the 19th of 20th century, said Zionism is going to only bring harm on Jews. They are going, people are going to, cast, it's going to cast doubt as to the loyalty in the countries in which they live. And we've seen this over and over again. And then they complain that this is happening. Well, they've created this reality. They're actually not helping to fight anti-Semitism. They're raising questions as to what anti-Semitism actually is. Right. That is very dangerous. Yes, indeed. You know, I was in Israel for the first time about six or seven weeks ago. And, of course, I've, I've spent almost my entire adult life, really, either living in or working on the Middle East. Uh, but this was my first trip to Israel. And I was, I was shocked at the different levels of society there. Even after 30 plus years of, of experience in this area, I was still shocked by it. And I think so much of this, this legislation that we're seeing or proposed legislation that we're seeing here in the United States is based on ignorance and misinformation. I think so many, so many people like 
the Montgomery County Council and the Fairfax County Council, I think that they're just following the the propaganda that they're fed. They're not worldly. They've never been to Palestine. They really don't know what's going on. The only reason why this vote in Montgomery County was delayed in June was because so many people wrote in and said, look, you're making a big mistake here. This is just pandering to the Israeli right wing. And, uh, you know, we'll see if they actually enact this thing. It's not a given, certainly, but I don't know. I wouldn't put money on it. Miko, I, I wanted to ask if you could tell us a little bit about the uh, the anti-BDS movement across the country. I mentioned in the intro that there were 33 states. I, I guess I should probably say at least 33 states at this point that um, that have formally banned BDS. Uh, so many states are forcing contractors to sign these pledges, which seem to me to be patently unconstitutional. What's the latest? What can you tell us? Well, the Supreme Court is now going to have to deal with this issue as well because of a, of a case in Arkansas. And if people want to know more, there's a great movie, Boycott, which is out right now, which is which is worth watching because it talks about exactly. Oh, terrific. Um, and uh, and we'll see what the Supreme Court decides to do. It's going to be very, very interesting if the Supreme Court's even going to take the case. But I think Americans need to ask a very simple question. Why in the world are we sending $3.8 billion to a country as foreign aid to a country that is rich, that doesn't need foreign aid? Why in the world are states and, and, and local counties and cities passing all these resolutions and laws? Why is Congress so supportive of Israel? Why is every law passed in the United States on any, and, and on any level, local and, and national, so loving and supporting of a country that very, you know, different and, and reliable agencies around the world have defined as an apartheid regime, where an entire people is be, are being killed. The Palestinian people are being killed. They're subjected to horrific oppression. They're subjected to horrific violence and racism. Why is this happening in the United States? Americans need to grow up to end their fascination with people like Benjamin Netanyahu and all these other right. so-called Zionist heroes. And, you know, read the writing on the wall. The Israel is murdering Palestinians on a regular basis. Young Palestinian blood is being spilled like it's worthless. And it's time for Americans to wake up. This is American money that's going to support this, this terrible atrocity that's been going on for over seven decades. This is what Americans need to be. They need to be looking at all these laws that are being passed, all these restrictions that are being imposed on Americans, and say, what the hell is going on? Why are we sending this place money? And why do we have this, this insane love affair with Zionism and Israel. I think that's right. A general strike is taking place in the West Bank in protest of the Israeli killing of a Palestinian youth. A flare-up in violence just before the election might be just what Netanyahu is looking for. How do you see things playing out in the West Bank in the next week or two as we approach uh, the Israeli election? Well, I mean, violence is good for business. Uh, Israeli politicians love when this happens, and, and if there's nothing going on, then they'll certainly uh, jump in and, and start something. And we've seen, I mean, you know, Palestinians, there's been a Palestinian uprising going on for a very long time. It's just that most of the time people are not paying attention. And now that Israeli elections are coming up, um, and there is a general strike and so on, then, you know, people are a little, there's a little bit of attention uh, given to that. Um, and so that's, that's the reality. There's, there's, there's young, you know, there's so many young Palestinians that are being, being killed over the last few months, every single day, 
19, 20, 18, 14, you know, 12 year old. I mean, young kids are being killed, are being gunned down every single day. And this massive war machine, which is Israel, is gunning down kids, which at best, at best case scenario, I should say, worst case scenario, have a broken down old machine gun with a few, with a handful of bullets. Yeah, the entire weight of this enormous war machine coming down against them. Mm-hmm. Of course, the vast majority of Palestinians that are being killed have never picked up a gun in their life. So, I mean, this is this is the reality. And, and for Netanyahu, for all of them, it's good because all of them like to show that they're tough. I think that in terms of, and you're probably going to ask me about Netanyahu in the next election. I am. <laughs> and so, you know, look at the field. You know, things are not all rosy. Everybody hates everybody. That's for sure. Oh, I I got that in spades when I was there. Everybody hates everybody. I was shocked by it. It's no wonder there are 40 political parties. And all the time there's some new recording, secret recording of somebody saying something nasty about somebody who everybody thought was their ally. So, I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's a, <laughs> the current prime minister. Nobody even knows his name. Right. He's a joke. So he's not coming back. The two more serious contenders are the defense minister. But I mean... Even Israelis understand that it's one thing to run a ministry or, or, or a military uh, against, uh, you know, a massive one with $20 billion, you know, budget against, you know, a bunch of kids with, 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 with a machine gun. That's easy. To be prime minister is a big job. So I don't think Benny Gantz is going to get the job. No. You know, good old Benjamin Netanyahu is there. He's probably not going to get a huge majority, but the seat. Nobody cares what kind of majority he's got. Once he's in the seat, he, you know, he, he, well, and, and that's what I was going to ask you. Everybody that I talked to and I talked, I was at the Knesset for an entire day. I talked to a, a very senior uh, minister, very senior minister. I talked to several different Knesset members, uh, think tank uh, people, professors, and they all said exactly the same thing, that the election has only two issues. Number one um, is uh, security. And number two is Netanyahu. That's it. Yeah. That's all anybody cares about. And everybody, uh, everybody predicted the same thing that you just predicted, that Netanyahu would win as part of a weak coalition. This would sort of drag on for another year. It'll fall apart. And then there will be yet another election. Do you, do you believe that? Do you agree with that? That may well be the case, although you never know. Netanyahu might have, might, might, you know, I mean, the, the, the reality of Israeli politics is that the coalitions change and they get renegotiated all the time. Mm-hmm. Keeps their word. Nobody keeps their word. And of course, the biggest liar is Netanyahu himself. So why keep your word? So, I mean, that's going to be the process, whether it's actually going to lead to another election in a year or not, or how long that's going to take. We'll see. But he's very happy to even be a prime minister in a transitional government because he's still in the chair. Sure. As long as he's in the chair, yeah. you know, he calls the shots and he's happy. So, yeah, that's that's probably what's going to happen. I mean, look, Israelis live well. The economy is doing well. Yeah. Israelis live well and they're happy. And the whole Palestinian issue for them is really not an issue. And so that's that's the reality. And 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 and, and I think the only grown up in the room seems to be in, in terms of Israeli thinking uh, is is Netanyahu. So I think he's got a, there's a very good chance that we'll be seeing him back in his seat. And if you saw him, the smug interview with with Bill Maher, I did the horrific, you know, I had to run for a sick bag a couple of times. <laughs> You know, he's very confident. And, and Bill Maher, never mind, just gave him free, you know, free airtime. And, and people were applauding every answer. 
Yeah, yeah, people were applauding. It was disgusting. But I mean, this is what liberal America likes. This is what America likes. Yeah, like it is. Guy, they like this image. That's why I say it's time to grow up and 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 uh, and stop admiring these people. But I, if you look at him, you know, I think he's pretty confident. He's feeling pretty good about about going back. And I think most Israelis want him back. Yeah, I hate to say it, but I think you're right. We'll leave it there. That was the voice of Miko Pellet. Miko is a human rights activist and author of the books The General's Son, The Journey of an Israeli in Palestine, and Injustice, The Story of the Holy Land Foundation 5. You've been listening to Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. No word yet from the Department of Justice, but stay tuned and we'll come back. Back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. It's just about time to wrap up the show. We wanted to talk about a couple of kind of interesting things that have been in the news. There was a, an interview over the weekend uh, with Salman Rushdie's uh, literary agent. We really haven't heard anything about Salman Rushdie since he was attacked and almost killed and rushed to a hospital, airlifted to a hospital. His literary agent is confirming that the attack left him blinded in one eye and without the use of his right hand. So this was a very serious attack. This, yeah. I have to say, alleged attacker who's on video, you know, carrying out the was attack. Is he suggesting he didn't do it? Um, he pleaded not guilty. Huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. In, in, despite the fact that there were 60 eyewitnesses and video. Yeah. Um, but he, uh, he clearly meant to kill Rushdie. That's what this was all about. It wasn't about making a political statement or anything. I've been thinking since I, I mean, yeah, what it, how old did he say? He's 76, right? Yes. Yeah, something like that. 76, I and think. And the attacker's 26. So like they going through physical therapy right. and doing all of that that you need to recover at that age. Good on him. I mean, not like, you know, I hope to live past 76, I suppose. I you know so. what I mean? I'm not saying he's a, he has to be at death's door, uh, but you know, it's it's hard work. It's harder yeah. work as you get older and you got to have the, you know, you, you've got to be able to focus on the other side of mm-hmm. it. And I don't know, it's been it's been running through my head. Yeah. The going through a long, a long healing process at a relatively advanced age and the kind of mental fortitude that that would take. Yes, indeed. And a terrible thing. Uh, our producer, Ben, sent us uh, some photos over the weekend of um, of people holding signs on bridges over the 405 in Los Angeles saying Kanye right uh, Kanye was right about the Jews yeah. right um we're we're seeing a lot of this crazy racism uh exposing itself uh without any you know second thought to it uh but I wanted to say that a friend of mine a, a, an amazing journalist by the name of Jason Leopold mm-hmm. with BuzzFeed um posted today on Twitter that Packages of this anti-Jewish, um, this vile anti-Jewish propaganda, have been left at the doorsteps of uh, of people all around Beverly Hills and uh, West Hollywood. Really? Yeah. Are these these pictures here? Yes. Uh, every single aspect of the COVID agenda is Jewish. Yes. 
What garbage. Yeah. These, I mean, I wonder if they're related to the the flyers that were being left around, I think it was houses in Nashville. I wouldn't be surprised. And then maybe other places in Florida that went back to just a really... Honk if you believe the Jews control America. Led back to some garbage website that Uh was, you know, thankfully pretty lightly visited. Yeah. They usually um, are. It took them a couple years to get a couple thousand views on some of their videos, if I have that correctly. Yes, indeed. God knows what kind of watch list I'm on for going to, but I wanted to see what it was connected to. You know what I mean? It is a creepy feeling typing something in. You're like, oh, people don't yeah. know that I'm right. I'm, I'm not researching this out of enthusiasm for the topic, right? No. It's like trying to get to the original source. I agree with yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, again, anybody who's latching on to something Kanye West says right now, it's just there's nothing behind it. Oh, yeah. There's nothing behind it. It's it's no, the, this the is product just of a, someone goes, you know, a, slowly a, going matter and matter. Mental crisis. He just yeah. happens to have a lot of money and access to the media. You know, uh, we haven't talked about Donda Academy, but you know, he's founded Kanye West yeah. has started this Christian this school, school, Donda Academy. Right. It's not accredited. Nobody's yeah. they, and he they, admitted that he's never read a book. Um, a whole book. It's they they do worship. You know, it's a religious school. Whatever. Uh, they're talking about how much it costs. And here's one thing I'll say. It costs less than a lot of other private schools. I was expecting Donda. I kept thinking this has got to be a typo. A money grab. It costs $15,000 a year. Yeah, that's cheap for a private school. Yes. For any private school. (laughs) Honestly. Yeah. It makes me feel like... He uh, he's got to believe in that mission because that is not very much. I mean, even the I think like basic level private school tuition is about double that. Right. Yeah. And more in places like New York and Los Angeles. Certainly it shoots up. But so, yeah, I was I was a little surprised at that. I don't if I had children, I would not send them there. I would not expect you get a good education there. But it seems to be less of a money grab than uh, anything else. Yeah. that Kanye West does and probably less lucrative. Yeah. You know, I'm almost at the point and, and smack me if I need to be smacked, but I'm almost at the point where I'm starting to feel sorry for the guy. It's, Uh, it's awful to watch people crack up like in real time in public. And I think that's what we're seeing here. I mean, this is the, this is the sort of fundamental question of mental health. You can be troubled and also just be a jerk. Yeah. Like you can be a bad person and also Mm -hmm. have serious mental health problems. You can have, you know, mental health problems and also, as we talked about with the case of Britney Spears, also deserve to have some agency over your life and to be able to make a bad decision sometimes, right? And so, you know, thoughtfully and responsibly and respectfully finding those lines is a process. But I don't know that as Kanye becomes more ill, he becomes, it it erases the genuinely crappy things that he has uh, seemed to do in his life. Uh, Merrick Garland is, is talking right now. There is absolutely no chance that we will be able to respond to what he says in the next seven minutes. I want to say uh, the National Labor Relations Board Union is tweeting saying uh, that the NLRB has, after years of inattention by Congress, no longer has the resources to adequately enforce its mission. Oh, my gosh. They're saying that the NLRB hasn't gotten an increase to its budget since 2014. Wow. So that flat funding is basically a budget cut in inflation. That's right. Other workers' rights agencies have seen increases and that, yeah, they just don't, they they have too much work for too few people. They're not funded enough to to do their mission, which of course is a very important mission right now, especially as um, attempts to unionize, you know, uh, crop up across the board in the United States. Let me interrupt you for one second. The Eastern District of New York just issued a press release that is written completely in Chinese. Oh. Yeah. I don't have any idea what it says, 
let me see if I can do a, a Google Translate. No, we're definitely Two gonna... Chinese intelligence officers charged with obstructing justice, conspiracy to bribe U.S. government employees, and steal documents related to a federal lawsuit. Hmm. I don't know if that's what we've been waiting for, uh, but it, it's just out in the last three minutes. I'm going to say I doubt it. Yeah. And we can see who wins tomorrow because that's all we've got time for today. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks to everybody who joined us. Thanks to our producers and engineers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Woody, thanks to you for listening again. We'll see you tomorrow.